So again, thank you for helping us have an impact on our region and beyond. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. You can see we're in this series entitled Overcoming. And what we're doing is this. We're going through two chapters of the book of Revelation. As it turns out, this book was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, that is Western Turkey as we know it today. And in these two chapters, each of these letter or each of these churches is addressed specifically. In each letter, Jesus addresses uh, the needs of these churches. And in each letter, Jesus invites Christians to overcome certain things that are getting in the way of living out their faith well. And even though this book was written hundreds of years ago, I think as we go through these letters, it's important for us to listen to Jesus as well. To hear him say to us, hey, here's, here's something getting in the way. Here's something you need to pay attention to. It's slowing you down. It's holding you back. And I want to help you overcome it. So this morning, we now come to the church in Pergamum. And just to show you where this is, we started in Ephesus and we're working our way up. So this is the, basically the farthest northern church. Uh, the city of Pergamum was this amazing city. Basically, the, the upper part of the city sits on the top of a mountain. It, it overlooks a beautiful valley. When Rose and I were there this summer, this is just part of the incredible uh, views that you see from the top of this city. And as you go through that upper part of the city, the Acropolis, there are just some amazing buildings. This is the theater that literally is built into the side of a mountain. I'll show you another picture of that theater. It is the steepest theater that was ever built in the Roman Empire. And you get the feeling as you stand at the top row of just what an amazing view would have, you would have had. And also, in that upper city, the Acropolis, there were a variety of different temples that you would have experienced in the heart of the city. Pergamum was the earliest city in Asia Minor to adopt the practice of honoring and worshiping uh, Roman emperors. So this is part of a temple that would have been built to the emperor uh, Trajan. Also, uh, at the upper part of the city, there was a temple and altar to the god Zeus. This is really all that remains of, of that. If I could have, there it is. The, this is basically the foundation of what would have been the altar at that temple. Uh, but uh, archaeologists have actually reconstructed what that looked like in a museum in Germany. So this was a massive temple and altar complex to the god Zeus that would have been central in the life of Pergamum. And if we had more time, I could talk to you about just some other gods that would have been worshipped there and other parts of of what would have been the temple complexes of this ancient city. So as Rose and I visited this summer, there's just some amazing buildings to see. But even as we went through the upper part of this city, there was one particular building, or the remains of one particular building, that I was desperate to see. I'd read about it in this guidebook. The problem was, this building was located in a part of the site that really wasn't maintained well. And consequently, we ended up spending about 45 minutes kind of walking up and down the side of this mountain looking for it. My guide didn't know where it was. Other people kind of at the top of the city, other guides, they didn't know where it was. 
And we were walking up and down the mountain. It's 100 degrees, 45 minutes. I think at one point my wife was wondering, whom did I marry? And uh, actually, I think she told the guy, look, we've got to find this. Otherwise, he's going to moat for the rest of the trip. So, um, but finally, we came across a caretaker. And he pointed it in a particular direction. And we walked about 53, 50 feet through overgrown bush and grass. And we came to this. And I had this guidebook, and I looked down at the picture, and I looked up at that. This is it. This is the building I've been looking for. Let me just show you one other picture inside that building. <laughs> and I know your first thought is, oh, my goodness, what's wrong with this guy? You've been walking around in 100-degree heat, no shade, 45 minutes, and you're looking for this? Yes. Yes, I was. And, uh, but I think over the next few minutes, as you understand what happened in this building, among other things, you're going to gain a deeper appreciation, maybe for the experiences of these early followers of Jesus Christ, the, the challenges that they kind of had to work through and navigate as they sought to be faithful followers of Jesus. Furthermore, I realize this doesn't look like much, right? It's just kind of some dilapidated walls, stone with a lot of overgrown grass, but I think as we listen to the words of Jesus written to this church in Pergamum, we're going to see over the next few minutes these, <laughs> these ancient stones. These stones actually have ongoing lessons for us to learn. To show you what I mean, let's now come to Revelation chapter 2 and let's listen to the words that Jesus writes to this church in Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Whoa. Let's stop there for a moment. This is, this is an interesting portrayal of Jesus. And maybe this is one that doesn't come to mind normally for you when you think about Jesus. I mean, we, you know, maybe we... We grew up in Sunday school and we see the different pictures of Jesus. Maybe you remember Jesus holding a lamb at some point in a Sunday school class. But here he comes with a sword. And it's not any sword. It's not just a little, it's, this isn't a little dagger. The, the Greek is specific here. This is a massive sword. It would have taken two hands to control. It would have been seven feet long. And it is a sword that is emblematic of his authority and ultimately emblematic of his power to judge. And to this church of these people, they're surrounded, right, by this amazing city on the top of a hill with all these temples. It was a provincial capital of Rome, all the authority that goes with that. Jesus begins by reminding them, by reminding us, I am the ultimate authority. I am the final judge. I will be the final judge over your life. That's how Jesus identifies himself. And this is then followed by words of commendation. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, 
Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now notice two things here in this commendation. First of all, it's clear, hey, there are people in this church, they have remained faithful, right? They have remained faithful uh, in the midst of opposition. They have remained faithful in believing Christ. They have not denied him, even though one of their own has apparently been martyred. So notice that, that reference to faithfulness, and also notice this reference to the throne of Satan, to the place where Satan lives. And you, you see that this reference to Satan actually frames the commendation. That's where Jesus begins, and he comes back to it right at the very end. And there are all sorts of theories about what is meant here, but I think in general terms, what this is referring to, it's the fact you live in a place, you are surrounded on all sides by a place where there's this pagan worship and this oppression and this opposition. And so Jesus says, look, I know. I know what you're going through. And I know the ways you have remained faithful day after day, week after week. So there, 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 there are things in this church to celebrate and to affirm. But There's a problem. And the commendation is followed by Jesus' words of critique, his, his challenge. Look, things have been going so well in so many ways, but here's something you need to pay attention to. Here's something you need to overcome. And what, what is Jesus' critique? It continues in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Here's the charge. Here's the challenge. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we've we come to that reference of the Nicolaitans earlier in this series. So what is he talking about here? Well, let's begin by acknowledging that there's a reference to the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, we read reference to this guy named Balaam. And uh, he appears basically as a prophet, as a leader. And Balaam apparently played a role in encouraging the Israelites to get involved with the Midianites. And we see this in Numbers, and as a result of, kind of his encouragement, the Israelites began worshiping the gods of Midian and also engage in sexual immorality with them. And so Jesus, is, in essence, is, is using this Old Testament story to say, and in some sense, this is now happening where you live. This Old Testament story is a precursor to what's going on in this church, at least among some of the people in this church. So what's going on? Well, pay particular attention to this reference to food, sacrifice to idols. Now, as it turns out, this, this, was, this was an issue for early Christians to navigate. We see it referenced in 1 Corinthians. We also see it referenced here in Revelation. And part of the deal is when you lived in cities like Pergamum, you know, there's all these temples, there's food sacrifice to idols. This is just part of the culture. And there were different ways you had to navigate this. For instance, one of the issues was, is it okay to buy food 
in the marketplace that had been previously sacrificed to idols. And, and Paul addresses this in, in Corinthians. He says, remember, idols, idols really aren't anything. So if you're at the marketplace, if you're giant and wise, and, you know, the marketplace food's on sale, you go for it. But there are other, other ways in which this whole food sacrifice to idol issue became more complicated. And I think this is what's going on in the church at Pergamum. Because see, if you're a Christian living in one of these cities, at times, you're going to be invited to social events, different kinds of celebrations, parties, maybe things associated with your trade, your trade guild. You're going to be invited to different kinds of events that take place in banqueting halls. Now, these banqueting halls would often be found in temple complexes. They would also be found in other parts of the city. And often, the events held in these banqueting halls were tied explicitly to the worship of pagan gods. In fact, usually they were idols in these banqueting halls. And that brings us back <laughs> to that building that I was desperately to, looking to find in Pergamum. The building I was looking to find was a Roman banqueting hall dedicated to the worship of Dionysius, the god of wine and pleasure. Now let me explain to you, kind of, let me just kind of give you a feel for how these dining halls worked. As I said, some were in temples. This one's actually located out in the city. It's literally about 50 feet off the main road. You walk through the main road that goes from the top of the mountain down to the bottom of the mountain. At one point, you cut through an alley. 50 feet, you're right here. Now, as you look at this picture, notice in the, in the dining hall, there are steps, right? And if you, if you were there, you'd see there are steps located at different parts of this room. Now, where are the steps leading to? Well, to kind of give you a feel, let me show you an older picture taken before it became overgrown. What I want you to see, if you see the steps in this room, they lead up to a platform. There's a large platform that goes all the way around the outside part of this dining hall. Here's, I put part of it in a box so you could see that. And so here's kind of, here's kind of the way things work. Let me just kind of explain it to you this way. So you would come in, right? You come in, you come into the banqueting hall, and then you go over to the steps, and you walk up, and you find your place somewhere on this platform. And in Roman culture, you, you generally ate in a banqueting hall by reclining. So there would have been pillows and mats on this uh, platform and you reclined facing in. That is, you kind of leaned in toward the middle of the room with your feet pointing in the other direction and you talked to the people next to you. And if you look at this, uh, if you look at this picture, you see there's a little ledge that goes all the way around the inside part of the platform. If I can have the next picture. Yeah, you see that? You see the ledge on the inside of the platform? That's where the food would have been brought by the slaves. It would have been covered in marble. And so you come in, you get, you get up the steps, you kind of recline on the platform, and the slaves come in, and they're, they're, putting the, <laughs> you know, they're putting the food in front of you. For those of you old enough to remember, they were, they're car hops, right? They're, they're bringing it in, putting it on the ledge. And notice right in the middle... Do you see the kind of the podium that's turned on its side? Right in the middle, right in the middle would have been the altar 
and the idol of Dionysius. And all along the platform on the interior, there would have been paintings and murals celebrating the worship of this God. And the deal is, in the course of everyday life, as a Christian, just living in Pergamum, you would have been invited at times to events in places like this, where central to the meal and all that happened was the worship of a pagan god. In fact, let me just, this is, I think this is really fascinating. Let me just show you an example of a Roman invitation. This comes from this period. It's from a different part of the Roman Empire, but it comes from this period. Diogenes invites you to dinner for the first birthday of his daughter in the Serapium, which was a temple tomorrow, which is Pacon 26 from the eighth hour onward. Now just think about this. Imagine the next invitation you got to a birthday party. Wasn't, it's not going to be at Chuck and Cheese's. It's not going to be at a pavilion in a particular park. It's not going to be at Hummelstown Pool. We're not meeting at Iron Hill and celebrating somebody's birthday. Imagine the next invitation you got to a birthday party was in a pagan temple. So how are you going to respond? This was a reality for Christians living in Pergamum in the first century. And apparently, there were some, not all, but there's some in the church who basically said, you know, this is just no big deal. We, we believe in Jesus, we're followers of Jesus, but we can also, we can also do this other stuff too. It's okay, it's, it, it all just goes together. You know, we, we believe in Jesus, but yeah, it's okay. We go to these things. Maybe it just doesn't feel like that. that's a big deal. This is part of our life as well. So this is what's going on in the church in Pergamum. Uh, notice also this reference to sexual immoralities debated exactly uh, what that entailed, it could simply be another way of saying you're engaged in idolatry because in the Old Testament, idolatry could be compared to kind of marital unfaithfulness, to adultery. Or it could refer to the fact that undoubtedly in some of these events, particularly events in certain temples, uh, prostitution would have just been a part of the celebration. So one of those two things is going on. So here are these people, and the deal is they've just gotten comfortable with believing in Jesus while doing the other stuff. Now, let's be honest. I realize at one level this is just very foreign to our experience. I'm quite confident you're never going to get an invitation like the one I just read you. However, while our context is different, I think the issue of idolatry is as real to us as it was to them. Because ultimately, idolatry doesn't just involve going to some banqueting hall where there's a little idol in the middle of the room. Idolatry really boils down to this. Idolatry boils down to taking something or someone besides God and saying, you know what, this is going to be the foundational source of who I am. This is going to be foundational to my sense of meaning, purpose, an identity. And the truth is, you can make idols of all sorts of things. I mean, we, we can make idols of, of even good things. I mean, it's good 
It's good for me to be committed to my work and to be diligent and continue to gain skills and kind of, kind of move through the process of career development. That can be good, but it, it's something entirely different for that than to become the ultimate source of my identity as if this is what makes life meaningful. And if I don't have this, then my life just doesn't matter that much. We can do that with work. We can do it with family, right? It's important for those of us who are parents to be invested in our kids, even as we celebrated with the branch this morning, right? We want to be a place that encourages you as parents. We want to partner with you, and all of that is important and necessary and meaningful. But it's another thing to say, my sense of who I am is going to be dependent on how well my kids do and how they're perceived by other people. And if you're not careful, families can become an idol. Other examples, let me just, you know, other things, I think, kind of some of our basic desires due to the brokenness of our sin can become idols. Things like power, control, approval, comfort. For instance, maybe, you know, I've got some really challenging stuff in my past and kind of how I grew up and my family, and as a result of that, as a result of some of the pain that I've experienced in previous situations, I'm just really cautious in getting close to people. And part of the way I maintain my comfort is just keeping my distance. Right? I'm never going to be vulnerable again. I'm not going to allow people to get close to me. I'm always going to be hesitant and guarded in how I view relationships. I'm going to figure out how to maintain my distance because this gives me a certain sense of comfort and control. Tragically for some, it, that really becomes the way in a broken sense that we make sense of who we are and, and how we develop meaning in life. And in its own way, it becomes an idol. Or just think about, the, think about the issue of achievement, right? Again, it's, it's a good thing. It's important to, right, to use your gifts and abilities that God has given you to work hard. And in many of your lives, that, that's led to certain types of achievement, academically, professionally, and otherwise. You're committed to your responsibilities, and, and that's appropriate. But it's another thing to say, you know what, my life only has meaning if I achieve certain things. Or my life only has meaning if, if other people recognize what I've achieved. <laughs> I think about this in my own life. And um, whenever I think about this, my mind goes back to one particular conversation. Some of you have heard me share this before, but this is always what comes to mind when I'm just thinking about you know, what this can look like in our lives. Uh, I attend a, a theology conference every November. I'll be going there next month. And a few years ago at this conference, I, I, was, I was planning to have dinner with a friend, and we're preparing to go to dinner. And as we meet up to go to dinner, he says, hey, I ran into somebody else. Is it okay if I bring him along? And I said, sure. So the three of us head off to dinner. And, you know, I, this was a guy named Tim. I, I didn't really know much about him, didn't know him. And so the three of us sit down, and, you know, we start dinner, and we're having this conversation. And he knew... You know, he knew, I mean, both my friend and I, we've gone to Cambridge, and he's familiar with that. And so at one point, he looks at me and says, tell me a little bit about the work you did at Cambridge and your research and, and that sort of thing. And I, I am embarrassed to admit it, but here's kind of the thought. I kid you not, this was my thought process. Let me slow down my thought process in that moment. 
my thought process was something like, you know what, I, I went to Cambridge, and you didn't. So I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to explain it in terms you can understand. And so that's what I did. Try to keep it as simple as possible. And you know, as, as I reflect back on that, as I kind of process this conversation later, I realized, you know, it was like I was holding on to this sense of, George, this achievement, this is who you really are. This is really foundational to who you are. And of course, God sometimes has, has just this amazing ability to challenge your idols. Because I go through this, you know, and I explain what I did in very accessible terms. And then we go further into the conversation. And my mother has always said, you know, conversations are like tennis matches. They hit the ball to you, you hit the ball back over the net. So that's exactly what I did. He asked questions about me, so I started asking him questions about his background. I didn't really know his background. So I learned more about his educational background. And I said, so, and he told me, you know, yeah, he had done a doctorate as well. I said, great, tell me, where did you do that? He looked at me and goes, Harvard. <laughs> and in the back of my mind, I'm realizing I, I didn't really need to dumb this down at all. <laughs> in fact, I probably sound like an idiot what I just said. And, and, and I kid you not, this is true. Several weeks later, I am reading a book this guy has written. And I'm having to go to the dictionary because I don't know all the words he uses. <laughs> it's like, and it is just like, okay. Look, you know, yeah, it's good. These things can be good. But when, when they become foundational, when they become my source of identity, wow. I've moved, I've moved into the realm of idolatry. And, and as you think about this, let me just give you a couple of, you know, a couple of ways just to kind of do some self-evaluation, self-exploration. You know, how do I know if I've, how do I know if I've moved into this territory? Just two real quick observations. I think one is look at your strongest emotions. Pay attention to your strongest emotions because sometimes emotions like anger, fear, guilt, um, sometimes they come from a very deep place because there, there's an underlying idol that is threatened. So if I get really angry, what's underneath that? Where's that coming from? And is it coming from a place where I'm holding on to something that I don't really need to hold on to? Or if I'm deeply fearful, maybe I think that something is under threat which I perceive to be a necessity in my life. But it's really not. So pay attention to your strongest emotions. And I think secondly, just look at your imagination. That is, where does your mind effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention? Because again, sometimes where a mind just constantly goes, says something about the deepest level of value and commitment. And I realize at this point you may say, but George, is this, you know, is this really a big deal, right? I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, it's true. Maybe at time I put a little too much attention on what I'm achieving or that sort of thing. Maybe at times, maybe I'm, I am a little too concerned about how other people think of me. But it's really a big deal. 
And if that's where you're at, let me just say, I think that's probably the point that some of the people in this church were making. You know, it's just, this just isn't that big a deal. That we can hold on to Jesus and we can do this other stuff as well. But if that's where you're at, let me just, just quickly remind you of the biblical critique of idolatry. And I'll just do this in two brief statements. And let me use Psalm 114. First of all, the psalmist notes, idols will fail. Look at this passage. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. The underlying theme of critique of idolatry throughout Scripture, among other things, is that idols fail. Furthermore, the Bible argues not only do idols fail, but idols over time degrade us. Look, look at how this psalm continues, the next very, the very next verse. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. For instance, build your, build your life, your identity on your family and children. You'll find yourself trying to live through them. Over time, they may come to resent you, and at worst, you may become abusive when they displease you. Build your life on your work or your career as if this is the true source of my identity, and you, you may become a workaholic. In so many ways, you may just become one-dimensional in who you are, and at worst, it will lead to shallow relationships, and perhaps you become depressed when your career doesn't always go according to plan. Build your life, your identity on the approval of others. You will find yourself constantly hurt by criticism. Perhaps at times lose friends because of how you engage them. And at worst, you will fear confronting others, and therefore you will not become a good friend to them. Bible says, look, you've got to take this seriously because your idols will fail and over time they will degrade you. So what happens when I see this? For instance, what happens when there are moments where I find myself, man, I've gotten really fearful. I've gotten really angry and underneath I see, man, I'm really holding on to something. I shouldn't be holding on to so tightly. I'm really holding on to my achievement in an unhealthy way, or I'm really holding on to the approval of others in an unhealthy way, and it's become an idol. So how do, how do I deal with it then? Well, notice, let's go back to Revelation and notice what Jesus says. Notice his response. First of all, verse 16, what does he say? Repent. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, look, you've got to take this seriously. You've got to understand, this, this isn't the way you're intended to live. So he says, repent, but not only does he say repent, I think also in this passage, he is telling us this. I want you to repent, and I also want you to reorient your life. I want you to reorient your life toward your new identity. And I, I see this in the final statement to this church. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Now notice this, to the one who is victorious, that is the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What's going on here? Well, I, I assure you the elements of this verse have generated ongoing debate and conversation. But in general terms, here's what I think is going on. First of all, the reference to hidden manna. Of course, right, we think about manna, we think about God's provision in the Old Testament as the people moved toward Jerusalem. And particularly in Jewish thought, there was the sense that one day manna would be important again when Messiah comes. And I think Jesus is tapping into that expectation. Furthermore, he makes reference to this white stone, and he says, you're going to give them this white stone with a new name on it. And, and we don't have time to kind of explore all the possible interpretations of that. But the one I think that makes best sense is this, that, that often in the ancient world, you know, in festivals that took place in banqueting halls, like I just described, there would be <laughs> an entrance token, and the entrance t ticket was some kind of stone. And so in a real sense, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, you've, you've been involved, you're, you're being involved in these banquets, these celebrations that are rooted in idolatry. And you know what? <laughs> these idolatries, idolatrous experiences are simply a broken imitation of the real thing. Because even as you find yourself comfortable in these kinds of banquets, I'm inviting you to a new kind of life. <laughs> With the food, the flourishing that only I can give. And I'm inviting you into my banqueting hall. That's what Jesus is saying. And again, there's all sorts of debate when he says, I'm going to give you a new name written on it. What exactly does that mean? Well, I think at least in broad terms, what he is saying is, I'm inviting you into my way of life where who you are isn't rooted in these other things. It's ultimately rooted in your relationship with me. Now just think about this for a moment. Think about all the different labels we put over our lives. That may sound like it's odd, but the truth is you and I, we, <laughs> we walk around with labels of how we view ourselves. For some of us, our labels read something like this, I'm successful when, I'm worthy when, and you fill in the blank. For others of us, we're walking around with labels that say, I have failed because, I'm a loser because, and we fill in the blank. I don't know what labels come to your mind when you think about your life, but you see what Jesus is saying? I'm going to write a new name over your life because you're mine. And that will be the ultimate source of your identity. Judy Cha leads a, a large church-based um, counseling ministry at Redeemer Church in New York City. And she's just kind of released a fascinating book about internalizing the gospel. And in that book, she makes this interesting observation. She says, you know, I've been involved in more than 10,000 counseling sessions. And she writes, at the core of most of these concerns is the problem of identity. And you see, that's, that's exactly what <laughs> Jesus is telling this church. 
I want you to overcome by embracing who you are as my disciple. I want you to repent and let go of some of the stuff that is holding you back so that you can reorient your life to who you truly are in me. Even as I think about this year, you know, we're going through this season where we're just encouraging to go deeper and wider. This is one of the reasons why throughout the year we're highlighting different spiritual rhythms and making these cards available for you to practice them in your own life. And for me, one of the exciting opportunities in this process is for people to grow deeper in their understanding of who God is so that they have a deeper appreciation of their new identity. And I think that's what Jesus is inviting this church to do, and he is inviting us to do as well. Now, since I showed you all these pictures of this ancient Roman banqueting hall, let me go back to one picture one more time. Just grab hold of that, and particularly (laughs) pay attention to the podium overturned in the middle. And think about the idol that would have been in that place. And look at that picture. And for those of us who kind of realize maybe the ways in which idolatry has taken hold in our lives, even as we've been talking, maybe something something has come to mind. If you find that in your own life and heart, just, just recognize it's like Jesus is pointing that out and saying, look at that. It's broken. This is not the way you're intended to live. And this dilapidated room across the other side of the world with overgrown grass is a living testimony to that reality. So Jesus says, overcome. That's his invitation to you. Overcome. Acknowledge that these patterns are not the way God intended. And begin taking steps to embrace that new identity that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we hear uh, Jesus' very straightforward words to this church, I think some of us find ourselves maybe in a similar place because for some of us, maybe they're just, there are ways in which we know the deepest part of who we are. Certain things have become rooted as idols. And Father, if that's the case, Would you just kind of make us aware of that? And I pray that we wouldn't just kind of walk out of the building and let this slip our mind. But would your spirit just challenge us to see that, wow, this isn't the way to live. And you're inviting us to embrace our new identity because it's that which truly liberates us from idolatry. So would we be open to taking steps to move in that direction? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thank you for being a part of this. And at this time, I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to be available up front. I know, I know, you know what, it can be awkward sometimes coming down for prayer. But if, if that is kind of in your mind, just kind of put that aside. And if we can pray for you, even about what we've been talking about this morning, we want to do that. And so now as you leave... Would you hear Jesus' invitation? The idols in your heart are simply a broken imitation 
of the life that Jesus offers. Therefore, he says, overcome. 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 Amen.